Talk Radio for inquisitive people. Solace Radio, Bonavista, Colorado. All right. Last time we met, we finished by looking at the four horsemen of the apocalypse. So let's begin. There's a little bit of a review. First, there was a white horse and a rider who had a bow, which was indicative of his inherent quality, which is generally interpreted to stand for war, his first rider. The second was a red horse, and the rider had a sword given to him, a great sword, which is generally understood as being international civil strife. The third horse was a black horse, generally understood as worldwide economic strife, where food is sold by weight and on an inflation rate that's, that's much above previous costs at a rate perhaps as high as 16 to 1, which is going to make it a very difficult time to live. A measure of wheat purchased for a day's wages is able to sustain only one person, it told us in this. And the same weight in barley was barely able to sustain three persons. Those were the examples given to us. When there's war, worldwide civil strife, foodstuffs tend to get scarce. Those of us that are old enough to remember World War II remember rationing that was imposed by the government. The government encouraged everybody also to plant victory gardens in their backyards. Those of us who are old enough to remember this, I had to go out and hold the victory garden. That was my job to keep the weeds out of it. My mother uh, canned veggies all summer for the coming winter, so we would have to eat. But in those days, back during World War II, we were all Depression people, so we knew how to do this. This is largely a lost art in these days, if it happens to get reimposed on us, and I believe from Scripture that it is really something that's going to happen. The fourth horse that's mentioned, was mentioned, was pallid, probably a yellowish-green color uh, from the Greek, and death was riding that horse. Following death was Sheol. Some translation will say Hades. Some will say Hell. In this, we see a progression. Wherever we have war and international civil strife, we have famine and pestilence. This will cover the earth. That first seal broken brings war. The second seal broken brings international civil strife, no doubt from the war are wars, plural. And the third seal broken brings famine that accompanies war or wars and international strife. This all leads to the fourth seal being broken where ultimately one-fourth of the world's population dies by war, famine, plagues, and the wild animals on the earth. Evidently, the competition for food becomes so keen that humans are attacked by animals that are in a survival mode, looking for something they have to eat. If one-fourth of the Earth's population is affected, the world's population being approximately 7 billion upwards to 8 billion, that means 1.7 to 1.8 billion people are going to die at this point. That's a little scary for us that that haven't been introduced to this, but let me put these numbers in a different form. If we put it in a different form, it's 1,700 million to 1,800 million people are going to die during this period. This is because of the wrath of man being poured out on man. God removes restraint and man begins to annihilate himself. This man that's doing this, New Agers will assure you today, is constantly evolving to a higher level. But Scripture tells us taint so. So this brings us to the fifth seal. So let's read this. If you want to write these down for your reference in future study, we're going to begin looking at Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Revelation 6, 9 through 11. Anyhow, Revelation 6, 9 says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I, that's John, saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been put to death for proclaiming the word of God, that is, for bearing witness. They cried out in a loud voice, Sovereign Ruler, HaKodesh, the True One, 
How long will it be before you judge the people living on the earth and avenge our blood? Now, just think about this. This is an altar that's going to be encountered during the end of the age, underneath which we're going to see the souls of people who have been put to death for proclaiming the word of God, that is, being the witness to God. Then this continues in verse 11. Each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants could be reached of their brothers who would be killed just as they had been. Verse 9, the Lamb opens the fifth seal. Notice that in the opening of the first four seals that the four living beings, angelic beings, that were around the throne of God spoke and issued orders to the first horsemen. Specifically, they each one of them as each of these seals is broken tells that horseman involved to go, to get out there and do your thing. Here the angelic beings are silent. And what we've just read, there's nothing said by the angelic beings. John's attention is drawn to what he sees under the altar. And what he sees under the altar is a multitude of saints, and he hears them cry out in a loud voice. We also need to note that attention is shifted at this point from what's happening on earth to what is happening in heaven. When those first four seals were opened, that's horsemen being loosed on the earth. Here we're going to an altar in heaven where these souls are now placed. This is going to be going on right beneath an altar in heaven. John is in heaven. He sees this altar there. And here are the martyrs, martyred for proclaiming the word of God, for bearing witness on the earth. One thing, one thing is certain. It is the persecution and the martyrdom of believers. Now, think about what's going on here that we've just looked at and then think about the theory of a pre-tribulation rapture. doesn't quite work out. This does not begin with the breaking of the seal. Now, understand that what this is talking about when this seal is broken has not begun with this breaking of the seal, but has at least in part already been somewhat accomplished because we see these souls already present under the altar and more are to come and be under that altar. And there are a lot of varying thoughts on who these would represent. Some think that this represents everyone mortared for God clear back to the most ancient of antiquity. Some others think that this might represent those martyred since the ascension of Yeshua at his first coming. And then there's the thought that these represents those martyred since the breaking of the seals began. Only those that have been martyred during the tribulation period. We're going to see as a system, as a systematic breakdown of the world occurs. We're going to see this. There's no doubt that there's a deep rooted hostility towards believers in God and Yeshua. We're going to see this as, as the breakdown of the world order uh, occurs. Those of us that have been able to view this over the past 50 years can attest to this increase in hostility and to the speeding up of this increase in hostility as we move closer to the end. It's these fundamentalist types in particular that won't accept any alternatives to their beliefs that are a major problem. Now, we sometimes joke about political crack but I think perhaps that's gallows humor when we do that. That our lack of political correctness is really going to come back to bite us. Those who wield power seem to particularly be having an increase in hostility towards any fundamentalist religion. Think about that. Those who wield power seem to particularly be having an increase in hostility towards any fundamentalist religion. Radical Islam is being branded as fundamentalist, for instance. The next step is to brand any other religious groups that won't compromise as fundamentalist. The term fundamentalist being synonymous with a lack of compromise and a lack of compromise to beliefs in order to be inclusive of others. They're going to want the church 
to kind of back down and back away and become synonymous with those who are not believers, I think is what we're looking at. Lack of compromise to beliefs in order to be inclusive with others. Now, this is now a very bad thing among many of those who wield power. They're doing this. How are we ever going to arrive at a conscious consensus and have peace if we don't have compromise? That's their thinking. How can we ever arrive at a consensus and have peace if we don't have compromise? And there are those in Judaism, Messianic Judaism particularly, and Christianity, who are not going to compromise. We're simply not going to compromise because that's not what our faith tells us we're to do. Frankly, we can examine history and find a consistent pattern of such hostility, but this end-time event will be different. An anti-Messianic kingdom or system will emerge, and those of the secular elite will convict and execute believers as the enemy. I want you to think about that. An anti-Messianic kingdom or system is going to emerge at the end of time, and those of the secular elite are going to convict and execute believers as the enemy. This secular system is really already in place to a great extent right now. And the rest is being assembled. When we get to the time this scripture prophesies of, this secular system will have been in place at least some amount of time. It is in place for some unspecified time, really, before this fifth seal is broken. At the opening of the fifth seal, John sees the souls of those who had been slain and been put to death under the altar. Well, what about that altar? What about that altar? At the tabernacle and later temples, there were two altars in place uh, in the that were really earthly copies of, of the heavenly structure. There was an altar for burnt offering, and there was an altar for incense burning. Let's go to Hebrews, Messianic Jews, chapter 8 and verse 5. And that reads, But what they are serving is only a copy and a shadow of the heavenly original. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, the tabernacle, God warned him, See to it that you make everything according to the pattern you were shown on the mountain. This passage is speaking of what the high priests were really operating down through time. And verse 5 here tells about where they serve. Where the high priest served in the temple was only a copy of the heavenly original. Moses was given a pattern to follow of what already existed in heaven, a shadow of what was in heaven. So the people John speaks of seeing under the altar in heaven were under that heavenly original. Not some copy on earth, but under the heavenly original. Now let's go to Exodus and look at the two earthly altars. The first one's in Exodus 27, verses 1 and 2. It says you are to make an altar of acacia wood, seven and a half feet long, seven and a half feet wide. The altar is to be square and four and a half feet high. Make horns for it out on its four corners. The horns are to be of one piece within it and you are to overlay it with bronze. Understand this is the altar for burnt offering, for the sacrifices that accompanied and this was the altar for burnt offerings that accompanied the tabernacle in the desert wanderings. The altar for burnt offering that was built in front of both temples later on in Jerusalem was humongous compared to this. But this was something they had to carry from place to place as they moved from place to place in the, in the wanderings in the desert before they were allowed into the land. So, now let's also in Exodus Look at the other altar in Exodus 30 and verse 1, 1 through 3. It again says you are to make an altar on which to burn incense. Make it of acacia wood. It is to be 18 inches square and 3 feet high. Its horns to be of one piece with it. 
overlay it with pure gold. Remember, the first one's overlaid with bronze. The one that they end up building out front of the temple of that first one will be built of stone. Anyhow, verse 3 here, Exodus 30, verse 3, overlay it with pure gold, its top, all around its side, and its horns, and put around it molding of gold. The bronze altar was outside the tabernacle at its front. You had to bring the proper sacrifice to get past it in order to be able to enter God's tabernacle. The gold altar was inside the tabernacle in what's called the holy place. The holy place is in front of the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the most holy place being where the presence of God himself would be residing. So which altar is this that John sees the martyrs under of these two? Remember the concept of Aliyah is of going up towards God. So these saints under the altar are not being penned up under there, down in some kind of a cellar dungeon with this altar covering that opening. They're in the process of moving upwards toward God and they have arrived at this point which is just below this altar. So which altar is it? Well, two pieces of information tell us. First, we deduce that they are where they are because of the altar of sacrifice. They're the ones who were put to death for proclaiming the word of God, that is, bearing witness. They weren't sacrificed. The altar of sacrifice was represents Yeshua. Among other things, Yeshua is the word of God. John's Gospel, chapter 1, says in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word became a human being and dwelled amongst us. It is His sacrifice that brought them to where they are. So they're past the altar of sacrifice. They're inside. They're in heaven. The second thing we want to look at is Revelation chapter 5 at verse 8. When He took the scroll, the four living beings and the twenty-four elders fell down in front of the Lamb. It's the Lamb who takes the scroll. Let me begin with that again. When he, the Lamb, took the scroll, that's taking it from the hand of God, the four living beings and the twenty-four elders fell down in front of the Lamb. Each one held a harp and gold bowls filled with pieces of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. That's a clue for us, believe it or not. The prayers of God, it says here, it tells us here in what we've just read, are incense. Gold bowls filled with pieces of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. The prayers of God's people are incense. What are these people doing here below the altar? They're crying out to God. That's prayer. And I believe that this is the altar of incense in heaven located just before the most holy place where God's presence is. And they are, their utterings are the incense that are going up to Him in that place. There are, of course, all sorts of ideas. One altar or the other for various reasons. One theory is that this altar combines both the altar of sacrifice and the altar of incense. I suppose this is compromise to offend no one, or maybe it offends everyone. Play it safe is what's going on with that theory. There's a pattern in this, and only one altar is mentioned. And I think that altar of sacrifice must be passed with the proper sacrifice before one gets to heaven and all, where this second altar is located. So in my mind, this is the altar of incense that these people are under, and the incense is these prayers going up to God from them that are underneath that. There are some who think that these martyrs were in some sense somehow people sacrificed to God. The body of the martyrs slain on earth and the sacrifice was somehow made in heaven where the soul was offered on this heavenly altar. Where such a thought would come from, escapes me. Where would such a thought come from? Well, in rabbinic literature. That isn't that far flung. Listen to a couple of things. This odd theology of 
rabbinic literature, only looked at in non-Messianic rabbinic literature. It says, according to the work of the second century rabbi Natan Habali, quote, HaKadosh, the Holy One, blessed be He, took the soul of Moses and stored it under the throne of glory. Nowhere in Scripture are you going to find that. But that's something that's held in Judaism. It was given in the second century by this rabbi, Natan Habali. HaKadosh, the Holy One, blessed be He, took the soul of Moses and stored it under the throne of glory. Not only the soul of Moses is stored under the throne of glory, but also the soul of the righteous are stored there. So that's a rabbinic theory. Now, Rabbi Akiva used to say, whoever is buried under the altar as if he were buried beneath the throne of glory. According to Talmud, the third century rabbi known as Rav taught that, quote, the archangel Michael offered a sacrifice on the heavenly altar in the heavenly temple. And the Tzosafot, the medieval commentary on Talmud, said this about that, that this sacrifice consisted of the souls of the righteous of Torah scholars. So we can see, for what it's worth, there's a lot of thought out there within the Jewish community about this sacrifice in heaven thing. Continuing, let's look again at Revelation uh, 6, verse 9. It's, this is just to kind of remind us of what's said. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been put to death for proclaiming the word of God, that is, for bearing witness. It's interesting that in this passage, the phrase, put to death for bearing witness, the Greek for witness is martia, martia, from which we derive martyr, martyr. Martyr comes from a derivation of the Greek word for witness. The Jewish concept is very close to this, a death which sanctifies the name. A name in the Hebrew is Kodesh Hashem. So these souls were underneath the altar and they were, in this concept, sacrificed to God. These people gave themselves essentially to sacrifice the name, to sacrifice God, and they're here beneath the altar in heaven They are martyrs. They are martyred. I believe this location uh, beneath the altar is a place for privilege. I really believe this location beneath the altar is a place of privilege for those people. They reside in the safety of God's keeping. It should be noted that on the sacrificing of their lives on earth, And they didn't sacrifice them. They didn't just run out there and hold out their head to be chopped off. They were sacrificed because they were killed because they wouldn't give up their theology about what we should be doing. Anyhow, it should be noted that on the sacrificing of their lives on earth, the most significant part of what took place with them happened in heaven. They ended up beneath this altar. Let's look in Romans chapter 12 verse 1, Romans 12 1, which reads, I exhort you therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer yourself as a sacrifice, living and set apart to God. This is Paul teaching. Well, by the time we get to the end of the age, we're going to find out that there's been a flock of folks that did this. It continues, this will please him, that is God, this is the logical, quote, temple worship, unquote, for you. Read this again, verse Romans 12, 1. I exhort you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies, to offer yourself as a sacrifice, living and set apart to God. This will please him. It is the logical temple worship for you. Back in Revelation 6, 9, the Greek for put to death is the same word that was used in Revelation 6, 4 back in the second seal, and the meanings of this word was slaughtered. Slaughtered. It's talking about that here. Why were they slaughtered? Why were they slaughtered? Two reasons. 
One, the Word of God is a basic ingredient. False religions and cults will not fall within this verse because they are not the true Word of God. The reason that these souls beneath the altar are identifiable with the Word of God was the testimony that they maintained. That's why they're there. The Word of God was part of their life, and that was visible to others. That was visible to others, which is what imperiled them and ended with their deaths and being under the throne of God, as we've looked at. The visibility of the Word of God in their lives will apparently be socially and civilly punishable by death. It'll be a capital crime when we get to that point, probably construed as a hate crime. Right now, today, in Saudi Arabia and some other nations of that ilk, this is already true. Go and confess Yeshua as your Messiah in Saudi Arabia and it's off with your head. But in what is being laid out here, we're not talking about just a few small nations with this taking place. This will be all over the face of the earth. This will be further explained as we go on through the book of Revelation. So we're going to move on. This gives insight really to social and political systems that will be in place at the time the fifth seal is broken. Intolerance towards anything of God. Intolerance towards anything of God. The big think, T-H-I-N-K, the big think, even right now, is the word tolerance has been taken and twisted and used in such a way that tolerance is effectively coming to mean intolerance. Intolerance to what they want you to believe. If you believe that Yeshua is the only way, which is what the scripture says, the only name under heaven whereby you may be saved. If you believe and espouse this, you're intolerant according to the thinking of those that are coming to be in control and you will be prosecuted. Anything of God that is deemed intolerant, our faith in God, will be incorporated into the law and statutes of the nations of the earth under the one world government. Now think about this. July 1st, 2002, you can remember that date if you will. July 1st, 2002, the World Criminal Court came into being. Prior to that, there was no World Criminal Court where those of the world could try anyone living in the world. July 1st, 2002, the World Criminal Court came into being. Never mind that the U.S. government never ratified it. It's still there. It's still there. What is amazing is that all of these signers of all of these nations that signed on to this did this without the definition of the word aggression being spelled out in that treaty. Can you believe that? They're going to make up that definition. They're going to make up that definition of what aggression means as they go along. As cases develop, where aggression must be defined, they will work it out to fit the case. That fits right in with what we've been looking at so far, that they're going to find ways to come against us. Moving on to Revelation 6.10. They cried out in a loud voice, Sovereign Ruler, HaKodesh, the True One, how long will it be before you judge the people living on the earth and avenge our blood? That's the people underneath that are crying out. They're underneath that altar and they're crying out. Can you believe this verse 10 is actually a prayer of the saints under the altar? And it's the incense that's going up before God. They call out. They literally cry out. The word used here was used by Paul in reference to a quote in Isaiah that he uses. Let's look uh, still in Romans. Let's look at Romans 9. And 27, Paul speaking, he says, But Isaiah, referring to Israel, cries out, Even if the number of people in Israel is as large as the number of grains in sand by the sea, only a remnant will be saved. This is a kind of a passion. This is the kind of passion that's evoked here in Revelation 6.10. This is not a whispered prayer. This is a prayer that's shouted, really, by those that have been taken. 
We can also look at Galatians 4, 6, which reads, Now because you are sons, God has sent forth into our hearts the spirit of his Son, the spirit who cries out, Abba, that is, dear Father. We need to get the intensity of this word. Those beneath the altar cry out in a loud voice. This gives us the deep feelings and the concerns of these souls about the subject matter of their prayer. The prayer addresses God as a sovereign ruler, a term that would have been well understood by the people of, of that time, of, of John's time, people that were living under Caesar at that time. This term was also used by slaves for their masters. If you were a slave, this is how you would address your master. Sovereign Lord or Sovereign Ruler. This, this, in this passage, it emphasizes God's complete power. These souls under the altar are asking for retribution in the sense of punishing the wicked, but not for vengeance or personal satisfaction. Not for vengeance or personal satisfaction. They're asking that this be done and take place. This prayer is to one who is holy and true, who reserves vengeance to himself. They know this, so they're not asking for vengeance. They're not expecting God to act as their agent for personal purposes of vengeance. The prayers that are being uttered are about justice and that God's justice would be accomplished on the earth. The question was, quote, How long will it be before you judge the people living on earth and avenge our blood? This is speaking against unregenerated mankind. Think about this now. How, what has been happening to this point in the world is not God's judgment. I want you to think about what's been going on in the world today that looks like judgment in some case falling is not God's judgment. That's still to come. That's still to come. What's been going on to this point is man's inhumanity against man. These believers have been the focus of this, speaking of this ungenerated mankind. Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 3, looking at verses 3 through 5. First understand this, during the last days, scoffers will come following their own desires and asking, where is this promise coming of his? For our fathers have died, and everything goes on just as it has since the beginning of creation. Hmm, that's an interesting thought. This gives us a peek into the ungenerated, a little understanding perhaps. This Greek thought of the ungenerated mankind is used 11 times in the four different Gospels that we're looking at. There, there are those who oppose the faithful. These are the anti-Messiah forces. There are some that feel these under the altar are beast worshippers. Now, there's some out there that are going to try to tell you that. Beast in the sense of Revelation chapter 13, but this is not talking about them being involved in any form of animal worship. It's a response that's given to God about them being under the altar. And the response from God to each of them was to give them each a white robe, which is a symbol of righteousness and the color of victory, as we looked at last week. Now on earth, it will appear that these martyrs were defeated by the forces of the false messiah. In Daniel, there are verses that we really need to look at. Daniel 7, verses 23 through 27. Read, this is what he said. The fourth animal will be a fourth kingdom on earth. It will be different than the other kingdoms. It will devour the whole earth. That's what we're talking about, the end of the age. Trample it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and yet another will arise after them. He will be different than the earlier ones, and he will put down the three kings. This is speaking of the false messiah. This one that comes up out of the third. 
takes over the three. He will speak words against the Most High and try to exhaust the Holy Ones of the Most High. He will attempt to alter the seasons and the law, and the Holy Ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and a half times. That works out to three and a half years out of the seven. But when the court goes into session, he will be stripped of his rulership, which will be consumed and completely destroyed. God's going to take it away from him and eliminate it. Verse 27, Then the kingdom, the rulership, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the holy people of the Most High. Their kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve them and obey them. We studied this in some depth back when we did Daniel. So you might go back and find that lesson again. In actuality, this is talking about these martyrs that are under the altar actually gaining victory. They're told to wait a little while until the full number of their fellow servants is reached. Well, there's going to be more go underneath there because we're going to go through this period where the false messiah is going to be brutally attacking everybody as he leaves the world. Their testimony has not yet been completed, if you will. There, the proclaiming of God's word and their bearing witness is still going on. Those that are going to be ending up under the altar, waiting to be redeemed, at the time this fifth seal is broken. Second Peter again, chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise. Keep this in mind. You're going to have people ragged God. Why is he waiting around? Why is he, why, why didn't he do this? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some people think of slowness, on the contrary, he is patient with you, for it is not his purpose that anyone should be destroyed, but that everyone should turn from his sins. This is the purpose of all this. They're told to wait a little while. Does this mean God is socked in, having to wait it out until a certain number of believers is somehow reached? No. God is just patient. And this is working out to God's plan. To say the least, this plan is not really fully understood. In 1 Corinthians it says, we see through a glass darkly. The matter of God's plan being hastened or delayed is not the issue here. What we're told is the persecution that has already begun is continuing at the time the fifth seal is broken. Now, with that in mind, let's go on to the sixth seal, which is Revelation chapter 6, verses... Then I watched as he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned as black as sackcloth worn in mourning, and the full moon became blood red. The stars fell from heaven to earth, just as a fig tree drops its figs when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. Sixth seal really is at the end of the first series of woes. The scene that John sees has returned to the earth. The scene that John is seeing here now as the sixth seal is broken has returned to the earth. We're going to see a pattern in each of these series of woes. They end with convulsions in nature. The earthquake mentioned here, the earthquake, the great earthquake, is a single worldwide catastrophe. Now, many believe that the time for these additional martyrs to be slain comes to an end here. I'm not so certain. Let's set up what I want you to look at on this by looking at imagery and the reality of these convulsions of nature. First of all, we need to understand that there will be some upheavals in nature when cosmic time stops and eternity takes over. The earthquake shakes everything to indicate that all of creation is ultimately involved in the day of judgment. 
We have to understand that nature by itself does not stand apart from God's judgment. It didn't at the fall of man. It's not going to at this time. The darkening of the sun and the moon is not a result of a temporary eclipse, although we've recently seen these as signs of something that's coming, which we're going to look at here, but rather signifies the end of the sun and moon giving and reflecting light. Note that it wasn't light, but darkness that ruled at the beginning of creation. Until God said, let there be light, everything was in darkness. So it will be for the unbelievers when judgment comes. Stars falling from heaven are compared to figs dropping in a windstorm. It speaks of complete dislocation of stars in space. The atmospheric illusion of blue sky disappears. It like rolls up like curling up of a piece of paper. I'm reminded, remember the old roll window shades and every once in a while it'd slip in a thing, it'd fly to the top and blast around suddenly. Lastly, the contour of the earth and the visible mountains and islands are moved from their place. That's just kind of a quick overview, really, of, of what's going to happen. Here the blackness of the sun is described as sackcloth, which is woven from goat hair, black goat hair, making it a fabric dark in color. Many believe that this six-seal parallels several verses. Others say this is off the wall, and Scripture doesn't talk about this. There's always those that are denying. I want us to look at two sets of three verses, two sets of three verses, three in the Old Testament, three in the New Testament. Let's start in Isaiah 13, 9 and 10, which reads, here comes the day of Adonai, full of cruelty, rage, and hot fury, to desolate the earth and destroy the sinners in it. For the stars, the constellations in the sky, will no longer give their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will no longer shine. Next is Ezekiel 32.7, which reads, When I extinguish you, I will cover the sky and make its stars black. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon will not give its light. All of the shining lights in the sky I will darken above you. I will spread darkness over your land, says Adonai Elohim. And then third is in Joel 3, 1 through 4. After this, uh, this could also be Joel 2, 28 through 31, because it's numbered differently in different translations. Joel 3, 1 through 4, or Joel 2, 28 through 31, which reads... After this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And also, on male and female slaves in those days, I will pour out my spirit. I will show wonders in the sky and on earth, blood, fire, columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and terrible day of Adonai. These are three representative statements in Tanakh. But there are others. Know that it's not limited to just these three. Now, the three that we want to look at in New Testament are all in the Olivet Discourse. I'm going to look at three different versions. First one's in Matthew 24, beginning in verse 29. It says, But immediately the following the trouble of this time, the sun will grow dark, the moon will stop shining, the stars will fall from the skies, and the powers in heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. All the tribes in the land will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with tremendous power and glory. Next is Mark thirteen twenty four through 26. In those days after that trouble, the sun will grow dark, the moon will stop shining, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers in heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with tremendous power and glory. And finally, third, in Luke, there will appear signs of the sun, moon, and stars on earth. Nations will be in anxiety and bewilderment at the sound and surge of the sea, as people faint with fear at the prospect of what is overtaking the world, for the powers in heaven will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with tremendous power and glory. So, is the sun's darkness due to debris in the air from the earthquake and also the color of the blood moon from the earthquake? The problem is, no. There just simply will be no sunset, no sunlight. The darkness of the sun and moon are not caused by the earthquake, but our problem is this description does not comport with our experience. This is not something that we can understand directly. 
Here's a thought for us. This great earthquake would seem to indicate the changing of the gravitational relationship with the planets is what causes the whole earth to shake. Not something within the earth, but the alignment of planets is going to change. And so we're going to see with this an earthquake shaking the whole earth. The earthquake is a result of the stress inflicted by what is happening with the sun and the stars and the moon and who knows what else with the planets. These things are not confined to the earth. Cosmic disturbances are coming. We now know scientifically that the entire universe is a really just in very fine balance indicating an intelligent order. Now, if this order is caused to be altered, and what is considered to be unvarying is no longer true, no longer the rule, no longer the norm, such as the fig tree. The fig tree example tells us just how far from the norm the order of things that we take for granted is going to be. It says the wind, the ruach, blows unripe figs off the fig tree. The unripe figs would not come off the fig tree in the normal. They're really firmly attached. It would seem that the stars, as we define such, would not strike the earth and disintegrate it, but either this happens or some other type of cosmic material rains down on the earth. What will become clear to man on earth is that the stability of the natural system, long taken for granted, is no longer there. And mankind at that point won't know what's going to happen next. Men's heart will fail out of fear of what's coming. They'll no longer be able to count on things as they were. The sky rolling up like a scroll. Every mountain and island shaken from its place. To roll up is to actually split, to separate, to roll up as a cloak. The things happening in the cosmos on the earth are seen happening at the same time are somehow interconnected. The devastation on the earth will be catastrophic over all the earth. No place on earth will escape. We know this is going to happen and it's a scary prospect from a human point of view. What about those that don't have a clue that anything like this is coming? They're going to be in panic. They're going to be in panic. We that are left are going to be going through a lot of inquiry and a lot of blame. Those of us that are certified as believers because of what's going on. Revelation 6, verses 15 through 17. It says, Then the earth's kings, the rulers, the generals, the rich, the mighty, indeed everyone slave and free, hid himself in caves and among the rocks in the mountains, and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of the one sitting on the throne and from the fury of the Lamb. For the great day of their fury has come, and who can stand? Verse 15 begins by listing seven enemies of God. Think about it. At that time, these are going to be seven enemies of God. Seven is the number of completeness. These seven enemies of God are the kings, the rulers, the generals, the rich, the mighty, all those in power, plus everyone else, the free and common folk and the slaves, which are listed first, those in power that hold the benefits of the secular world in their grip. The earth's kings, rulers, generals, rich and mighty now. Everything suddenly changes. Everything suddenly changes. And these people now find themselves with no more advantage than the slave and the freeman has. They've just been reduced to the lowest common denominator. It's an interesting note that prior to the opening of this seal, there's no mention of the secular system. This is really the first mention of the secular system as we go through this scripture. The mighty men that control are substantially affected by the events on the earth. Are they affected? Well, one possibility is that the cities as we know them now will no longer exist. Caves and rocks are the only safe havens. Relatively speaking, it's evident that the terrors of the day are so extreme that no person on the face of the earth is going to escape them. The language in this verse is inclusive of everyone. Let's look at Isaiah. Chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 10 and then skip ahead. Isaiah 2.10 says, Come into the rock, hide in the dust to escape the terror of Adonai and the glory of his majesty. And then skipping ahead to verse 19, it says, People will enter 
cracks in the rocks and holes in the ground to escape the terror of Adonai and his glorious majesty, when he sets out to convulse the earth. On that day, a man will take hold of his idols of silver and idols of gold, which they made themselves to worship, and fling them away to the moles and the bats. Then they will enter the cracks in the rocks and the crevices in the cliffs who escape the terror of Adonai and his glorious majesty when he sets out to convulse the earth. Note this language. When they crawl in the cracks of the rocks and the crevices in the cliffs. Hosea adds that they will be calling on rocks and mountains to fall in them to hide them from God and from the Lamb. This also should be a wake-up call to believers who think Yeshua is coming back as the meek, forgiving one that he was the first time. That element's still there for the saints that he will come back for them as the meek and forgiving one his first time. But for the rest of the world, for the rest is judgment. He's coming back for judgment. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Those that are hiding in the crevices and the rocks are going to be in psychological state of terror. The calamity fronting them, confronting them is so great that to have rock or mountain fall on them from their point of view is a better deal than facing the calamity that God's bringing. What are they facing? The fury of the Lamb. Simply that, the fury of the Lamb. The expression is found only here, that the fury of the Lamb. The expression is found only here in Revelation 6.16. Found in no other place. This is divine wrath and, ready for this, essentially founded on love. Okay. How can wrath and love be implemented at the same time? How can wrath be an expression of love? Statement made here with regard to kings, rulers, generals, etc. continues in verse 17. It's readily apparent that the calamity that's upon them is not just some exaggerated form of north, regular, of normal earth calamities. This is different. They have full knowledge of who they're dealing with and what the present situation in which they find themselves means. Note that in this verse, verse 16, they know who it is they face, him who sits on the throne and the Lamb's fury. They know the times for the great day of wrath has come. The woes already passed, the forerunners of this great day. The great day will have come. That it has begun. That the end has not yet come. It has begun. That the end has not yet come. The fury is being poured out. The end has not yet come. In fact, we'll see that the unbelieving world has yet worse woes to encounter. And in order to repent, in order to repent, they're going to encounter these. See, God's not willing that any should be destroyed when he takes destruction, when he talks destruction. When he talks destruction, it's not earthly destruction. He's not talking about physical life. He's talking about eternal destruction. This is how wrath and love is implemented at the same time. He's going to throw enough wrath at the world that if you really are interested at all, you're going to come and change and turn to him. A patient God comes again and again with his wrath, allowing all who will to repent before the final end. So what has taken place and what is yet to come is still part of God's grace. What does God have to do, God believing man, to save some? That's really the question. That finishes chapter 6. Next week we'll start with Revelation chapter 7.